Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your regular host, Kelsey Sumnick. This episode is a special workshop episode. We're discussing knowing your rights as a government employee. And to guide us through this topic, we have a very special guest host, Jenna Ben-Yehuda. Since this is a dynamic discussion, we felt it was important to have an expert who is on the ground in Washington, D.C., leading us through these questions with our incredible panel. As a seasoned national security professional with nearly two decades in government and management consulting, Jenna is the founder of the Women's Foreign Policy Network. She has written for President Obama and five secretaries of state. And she's an adjunct professor of international affairs at the George Washington University. Regular listeners may know Jenna from her Women in Diplomacy episode in November 2016, so check that out to learn more about her background and to hear her valuable career advice. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you for hosting. Thank you so much, Kelsey. It is so great to be back with the Women in Diplomacy podcast, and I'm just thrilled to be teaming up with you and your team today and all of your listeners and all of WFPN's 1,600 members in 60 countries worldwide to talk about this very important and timely topic about just knowing your rights uh, as a federal employee, as a contractor working in government, uh, and also uh, as an active duty military uh, employee. We have a great panel joining us today that I'll introduce, and then we're going to dive into our discussion. We're joined here in the studio by Danielle Bryan. Danielle is the executive director of the Project on Government Oversight. She's worked with federal whistleblowers and others inside the government for over two decades on investigations ranging from the $13 billion superconducting super collider to uncovering billions of dollars in fraud committed by the oil and gas industry. She frequently testifies before Congress and regularly meets with members of Congress and officials at the White House and federal agencies to discuss how to achieve a more effective, accountable, open, and ethical federal government. Welcome, Danielle. It's great to have you. Thanks so much, Jenna. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Next, we have Mandy Smithberger. Mandy is the director of the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. She's a former national security policy advisor to US Representative Jackie Speer, Democrat, California, where she managed the Congresswoman's whistleblower hotline and worked on passing key provisions of the Military Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act into law. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you so much for having me. And finally, Ari Wilkenfeld. Uh, Ari is civil rights attorney and partner at Wilkenfeld, Herendine, and Atkinson in Washington, D.C. Ari is a seasoned employment law litigator and trial attorney who has worked as both a management side labor lawyer and for the past 18 years as a plaintiff side employment attorney. He has extensive experience litigating in federal and state courts, as well as before the EEOC the Merit System Protection Board, and various arbitration groups. He has represented thousands of individuals in cases against their former or current employers, and his clients come from all walks of life and from a broad range of industries. He has represented professionals such as high-level executives, investment bankers, 
hair salon stylists, fencing and dance instructors, commission-based sales professionals, human resources professionals, university professors, and a wide range of federal employees, including everything from custom border protection officers to food and safety inspectors. Welcome, Ari. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jenna. So before we get started here today, we want to remind everybody that none of what is said here today should be construed as legal advice of any kind. This is food for thought and part of your information diet and things you might want to consider. But please, don't consider this legal advice. I want to dive right in. I know we have so much to talk about. And uh, I want to say also that this conversation was spurred by a lot of chatter amongst our members with just questions about what do my rights look like as a federal employee or contractor or active duty member of the military? Um, in this environment, what can folks reasonably expect? And so I think uh, what we want to try to do is help folks get smart on what resources are available to them uh, and things they need to be mindful of as they kind of wade into of exploring a disclosure of some form or another. Um, so Ari, let's start with you. Can you walk us down the path of uh, what this spectrum looks like um, and, and what folks should consider as they uh, put a toe into the kind of the waters of disclosing? Sure. Um, and I think I would start by saying that, um, you know, when you're considering whether to make a disclosure or whether to be a whistleblower, one of the first things you want to do is figure out if you want to do this, you know, openly, or if you want to do this anonymously, um, and there are um, a lot of amazing resources out there um, to help people who want to disclose but don't necessarily want to take on the life of a whistleblower. And uh, Danielle and her group is the most important resource we have, um, and they've done a tremendous job over the years. If if I were a federal employee thinking about disclosing, I would call Danielle first. Um, she can keep you out of trouble, um, but where my work comes in is for people who have not managed to um, to stay under the radar. Uh, the you know the over the, the overview of um, the protections that are available to federal employees, um, federal contractors, and, and military members is the uh, Whistleblower Protection Act and the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act, which together are known as the Whistleblower Protection Act or the WPA. Um, in general, this law um, protects people from retaliation if they have um, disclosed or revealed waste, fraud, or abuse um, to an appropriate source within the government. Um, as we go through this in more detail later, um, I'll be able to kind of splice that up a little bit as to what constitutes a reportable incident or a reportable item, um, who the report must be made to, and what kinds of adverse actions are protected against. Um, but in general, you know, if you make a report to the right person, and the report is of something considered significant by the, by the act, um, and you suffer an adverse consequence, there's legal protection for you and different ways to, um, to sue um, or raise complaints if you wanna, go, if you wanna remedy that. So Ari, thanks for that. That's really helpful, I think, kind of broad brush picture on what the Whistleblower Protection Act includes. Help us understand, maybe Danielle, you can address when POGO engages on these issues and folks come to you, 
what does that process look like? Because it it sounds like where we we want we want to stay out of uh, whistleblower territory where possible. So, uh, what are the other potential avenues for disclosure, and what might that look like for an employee? Right. That's exactly the right question, Jenna. And thank you, Ari, for those kind words about POGO's work. Our goal has always been to help those uh, insiders preserve their anonymity, reveal whatever the wrongdoing is that they feel is important to disclose and stop and correct, but at the same time be able to keep their job. And it is, it is, um, Despite the improvements that have been made in the laws, as Ari was describing, the reality is it is still a very miserable experience, even in the best of circumstances. And so our goal is to help the person, and and every case is different, so I can't say what does it look like. You know, in some cases, it's helping that person connect with a trusted congressional office. Sometimes it's it's perhaps managing a, a conversation with uh, journalists, and sometimes, maybe most often, it's working with us to get the right documentation so we can, at POGO, prove whatever the wrongdoing is and work to correct it and keep that official or a person on the inside in on the inside and not, you know, not making it about them. Right. And so I guess help us understand some of what that might look like. You talk about going to a member of Congress. Um, do you are you engaging as sort of a, a matchmaker dependent on the on the issue or country in question? Well, that's uh, it's a it's a fun way to think about it. One of the important things to keep in mind is that whatever the subject matter is, uh, that the person wants to disclose may not fall in the right jurisdiction for a particular member of Congress. We have, over time, learned where the strengths and interests lie in, in uh, certain congressional offices, and, and there really are very few who we would trust to protect that person's uh, identity. So that would be sort of one approach if there is, um, you know, a perfect match, as you described it. But Often, frankly, more frequently, we work with the insider to get the documentation so we can be the people dealing with the policymakers or the press in order to preserve the uh, the government person's um, arm's length relationship. Right. And so I know for so many of our listeners, a lot of the work that they do um, happens in a classified environment, which is to say so many of these documents are classified at various levels. Um, can you help our listeners understand uh, what that looks like um, and what those avenues for disclosure might be internal to an agency if they're dealing with classified material? Well, that becomes a, a much more complex arena, of course, because that's sort of the first and easiest way for a retaliating agency to trip up a person, even if they've tried all the proper steps. Uh, it, we, um, Mandy and I worked last year on a case that took months to sort of clear a person who had gone through absolutely the right channels and was working with the Congress, but they were still under investigation for, for many months for that. So it's very important to try to, uh, to parse what is unclassified as often as possible, and then at the same time, make sure that we're, we're helping the, the source of information uh, be absolutely to the letter, uh, only communicating with people who are properly cleared in advance, 
That means making sure that the staff of the members are, are cleared. And if in the highest cases, if we're talking about the intelligence committees, we have, you know, a couple of trusted people uh, in um, on the staff level in those agency in those committees rather that that we do trust, but not too many. So so um, these are the most difficult uh, parts of, of describing dissent is when it's in the classified setting, especially in Intel. Um, and I can't say that there's one path forward. It really does depend on each case. So we've got Congress. We've talked about this a little bit. Um, another path that we hear a lot of discussion about, especially these days, uh, is going to the press. What would you advise our listeners they consider before disclosing to the press? And I think we should add here that uh, if this is classified material that's in question, um, that that is absolutely not something that we're advocating for here um, and, you know, would take great care to to just highlight that piece of it. Maybe you can speak to those elements. Right. I mean, I think it's very important to remember that journalists will, um, for you know, doing their jobs well, will be encouraging uh, people to reveal classified information to them because that makes a better story. Their job is to get a good story and their job is to protect the source's identity. But what I think is very important for potential sources to keep in mind is it's not the journalist's job to give you the best advice for you and your career. Um, we've had a number of examples one that comes to mind for me is is a case where it was the Department of Justice uh, whistleblower who, uh, in the Bush administration, was very concerned about the warrantless wiretap program, and he went uh, to a New York Times reporter who, you know, actually ultimately I think got a Pulitzer from the story, but was discouraging the source from going to the Inspector General. Had he gone to the Inspector General, I think that that uh, his his potential of being protected and preserving his job would have been much stronger. Actually, I'd like Ari to to speak to that question. Um, but because the journalist's focus was on getting, you know, holding control of the story and knowing when he could run with it rather than having more people know about it, he gave very bad advice to the whistleblower. Yeah, I, I was thinking as you were talking that, you know, the, the advice you just gave is the exact same advice I give to clients when they're thinking about reaching out to the press, which is, uh, that the press can be a very powerful tool, um, but that they need to know that the the journalist's allegiance will always be to the story. You know, they will. It's their ethical duty to protect their source, um, but their you know their final duty is to the story. Um, I think it it also it's important to note that you know, and, and this is one of the most common mistakes we see um, from people on the tail end of the whistleblowing um, problem. Is, is that going to the press is not protected under the Whistleblower Protection Act. And this goes back to some of what we were talking about earlier in terms of who do you have to make the disclosure to in order to be protected by the act. And, um, and journalists are not in that group. Um, and so, Ari, just to review, who are the appropriate entities to whom a prospective whistleblower can disclose? Sure. Um, there are, the, the, the act defines three categories, um, but there's sort of like a, a fourth category, which Danielle has been talking about, which is, you know, going, um, going the congressional, but the, but the three sources, the, the three places you are supposed to go to in order to make a disclosure, if you want to have the protection of the WPA, um, is you can either report the issue to your supervisor, you can report the issue to the inspector general of your agency, 
where you can report the matter to the Office of Special Counsel. And, um, and there are kind of positives and negatives to all three. Um, you know, reporting to your supervisor, you know, if you have a good relationship with your supervisor, that might be the way to go. But always bear in mind that the supervisor might be part of the problem and usually is part of the problem when someone's blowing the whistle. And so they obviously would not be the best people to go to in that instance. Um, the Office of the Inspector General for each particular agency is a dicier topic. And, um, you know, some of the IG offices are really good on this issue. Most of them are not very good on this issue. Um, many times that's because the IG um, or the Inspector General will have been involved in some way in approving um, whatever the bad thing that you are reporting is. And they will have an investment in, you know, not getting in trouble themselves. Um, but even beyond that, there are some IG offices which are just really, really strong on this, on this, on protecting employees, and there's some that are less so. Uh, speaking to somebody like um, the people at Pogo or me or many other attorneys, kind of, we all have a sense of which agencies are stronger than others in this front. And then the last place you can report and still be protected by the WPA is the Office of Special Counsel. Um, this is um, this is often the preferred place to go because it is the only one of the three that is obligated to protect your anonymity um, and is the also the one that leads you to a direct cause of action um, for you to prosecute if things go that far. And so can you walk us through what is the Office of Special Counsel and who sits on it and is it largely seen as being occupied by career people or um, do you think folks can continue to have uh, faith that those disclosures will be adjudicated appropriately? Well, it's kind of a bit of an open question. If you'd asked me this three, four weeks ago, um, I would have said that, you know, uh, that the current administration's decision to keep on the um, special counsel left over from the Obama administration was a good sign. Um, Carolyn Lerner did a, a really excellent job and, uh, and her staff was, um, was really good at, you know, looking through these cases and, um, and protecting anonymity. Um, since that time, uh, the president has reversed himself and has decided that he did ask for her resignation. Um, and we are nervously looking to see the direction that office takes. Um, it was not a great place to make disclosures to during the Bush administration. And so we're, we're all a little anxious, but we're not quite, we're not quite ready to declare it unsafe territory yet. So it sounds like we're uh, we're wait and see, Ari, on uh, the extent to which the Office of Special Counsel will continue to be uh, a place of confidence uh, for whistleblowers. But Mandy, can you talk to us a little bit uh, from where you sit about where uh, military and intel folks uh, sit on this? Where where can they go, um, and and what are the best avenues for them? Because I understand they have different rights um, in this in this area. Right. So military whistleblowers are restricted in who they can go to. Um, so unfortunately, they cannot go to the Office of Special Counsel. So they usually would have to go to the Department of Defense Inspector General, which is one that we found has kind of a mixed record. I think for going to so many of these other outside entities, we would really encourage potential whistleblowers to consider working with an attorney or working with Congress. Uh, inspectors General in particular work both in the for the executive branch and for the Congress. And we've found that generally their cases are taken more seriously if it's clear that there's congressional interest there. 
Uh, similarly, and Danielle can speak more to this than I can, but intelligence whistleblowers primarily have to go to the intelligence committees of jurisdiction. So in order to disclose classified information, an intelligence whistleblower would have to go to the intelligence committees of jurisdiction. And so there we're really talking about the Senate Select Committee for Intelligence and the House Select Committee. Is that correct? Correct. With the exception that for the FBI whistleblowers, they have some ability to go to the Judiciary Committees. Something that whistleblowers can also be aware of if they want to hold on to their anonymity and want to make sure that they disclose classified information in a SCIF, a congressional staffer can request access to that SCIF and doesn't have to say who will be the person who is speaking to them. So that can be one tool of the trade that not all offices are aware of. Can we define what is a SCIF? Mandy, can you, uh, for our listeners, I think we need to do some uh, maybe outside of the Beltway or even inside the Beltway uh, <laughs> vocab here. What is a SCIF for purposes of this conversation? So a SCIF is where you can disclose classified information. It's making sure that, you know, it's a place you can't bring in your cell phone. It's a place that's been cleared of any bugs and so that you uh, have to have proper clearance to be able to access it. The one thing in some of the cases that we've handled, even whistleblowers who think that they are disclosing unclassified information, we've seen instances where agencies will retroactively classify that information and it might be worth taking extra precautions to be as safe in disclosing that information as possible so as to not be accused of mishandling classified information, which would put someone's security clearance in jeopardy. And so a little bit more on that um, for information that is, for example, sensitive but unclassified or for official use only, um, those are not classified, those are not classified uh, materials but is there is your understanding that they could then be construed as uh, as protected in similar ways? Well, uh, this is Danielle. History has shown that, that we saw a perfect example where the Department of Homeland Security through the TSA tried that approach with the TSA whistleblower, and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. This was a case where that that uh, TSA uh, agent, uh, he was an air marshal. Uh, gave what was Homeland Security sensitive, which is not classified, as you pointed out, information to a journalist. And uh, I think a year later, the uh, agency retroactively, um, uh, well, they fired the agent once they figured out who it was. And they actually used the fact that it was um, marked, even though it was retroactively marked, <laughs> but it wasn't retroactively classified. But they used that as an excuse to fire him. Um, and uh, he won, but it took 10 years of battling all the way to the Supreme Court. So we do have case law that now clearly shows that these, um, um, that these agency markings are not uh, superseding through the protections that are afforded through the Whistleblower Protection Act and the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. I did want to add a little bit to what uh, when Ari was talking about protected disclosures. One of the beauties of that Enhancement Act is that it did actually open up the opportunities for some disclosures to outsiders in the press or even at places like Kogo can be protected under that law under certain circumstances where actually, Mandy, you could speak to what are the explicit uh, uh, requirements in that case? 
So in those cases, it, we want to make sure that the disclosure is something that is going to jeopardize national security or public safety. I know that there are a lot of climate change whistleblowers who see their work as being as something that falls under that category. I would caution them that I we have not seen the courts frequently read these protections broadly, and it's risky to think that they are stronger than they are. Because they're, the timeline here is really imminent, right? You're really talking about right. uh, an attack in you know, a certain kind of near-term timeframe or something of that sort. That's right. Exactly. And so just kind of thinking about this whole world of classified uh, disclosures, what does this all mean in a post-WikiLeaks era? Um, if there had been classified, if material was at the time classified was disclosed um, through WikiLeaks, could folks, should folks consider that now to be, because it is in the public domain, no longer classified and therefore uh, material that could be uh, explored or is, is material leaked by others then considered fair game? Or what does that whole world look like in terms of its interpretation by WPA? We've certainly well, seen agencies that have continued to argue that that information remains classified, even though it's public. Uh, so, so I would absolutely not encourage people to assume just because it's public that it's it's now declassified. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, my advice to my clients has always been that to treat documents that are classified or could be easily classified to treat those documents as radioactive. Um, you know, they don't lose their radioactivity just because they have, you know, appeared in the public domain someplace else. It's just too risky to kind of hope for the right ruling on that kind of a case. So I consider those, and there every agency or many agencies created, there there was just a, a many dozens of these types of markings that we call pseudo classification. Um, and those certainly are not a, a, a secret in the sense that they can't be communicated to the Congress. Uh, and often not for, you know, they're not of concern even to the public. But I do want to caution that there are some markings that do still have very serious penalties for disclosure if it's a type of um, privacy uh, protected information, trade secret information, uh, even law enforcement. So there are other markings that aren't classifications that still need to be taken very seriously. And this is the kind of thing that we can help people think through before they make missteps. So along those same lines, then, this, this whole notion of retroactive classification by an agency, is there still no case law on that? Is that widely seen as kind of fair play on the part of, a, on the part of an agency in response to something like this? Well, I certainly don't think it's fair play, but, but as Mandy pointed out, we've seen it at POGO probably, I think, three or four times from different agencies. The Air Force, DOJ, others have done this where unmarked uh, information becomes classified uh, because it was embarrassing. And how has that played out in the courts? You know, I'm not sure that that particular element has been played out. Are you aware of anything, Mandy or Ari? I haven't seen any judicial rulings on it, but I know that at the agency level, there have been a number of, ad of findings that we would consider adverse. I think the courts are a little bit reluctant to interfere because there could be legitimate reasons why information that didn't seem like it was classified before 
should be classified later. And I think there's just some reluctance to interfere with that judgment. Hmm. Also, the, and that, that's a good point. And also I think worth noting that a case like that is probably gonna be sealed away from the public. So we wouldn't know about the decision. Right. And then maybe similarly, does that argument extend to trade secrets that something could be at one point fairly uh, innocuous, not considered a trade secret per se upon disclosure, but then uh, retroactively negotiations, negotiations change, uh, the climate is different, uh, and what was once fairly banal uh, does become a trade secret. I haven't seen that happen uh, in terms of trade secrets. I think that's pretty explicit whether it's marked or not. But, you know, I think the danger in, in having a conversation like this is that it is, uh, it is difficult to sort of give sort of proclamations of what is or is not because it is so uh, fact specific. So, Danielle. We've gotten a number of listener questions, which we'll continue to try to integrate in our conversation here today. But we had a listener ask uh, specifically about Hatch Act uh, as relates to social media. And uh, this person wanted to know, uh, what can I say uh, on Facebook about a political candidate or a particular policy, especially uh, assuming here, of course, that it's not done on a government computer or during the workday? Um, what does that kind of personal First Amendment space look like with respect to the Hatch Act online? My advice to all federal employees is, is to just absolutely avoid political speech on social media, period. But Ari, you could speak to what their rights are. Yeah, I, I, would, I would echo that advice. I think that, you know, um, the, you know, unlike other laws, you know, the Hatch Act is largely... Um, you know, what it means is largely regulated and determined by um, by the agencies themselves and to a lesser extent by the Office of Special Counsel. So number one, I would say, you know, just don't do it. Um, you're just safer that way because um, the rules are subject to change. Um, and Ari, let me ask on that. Does it matter if you post as Ari Wilkenfeld or is there a difference if you post as Ari loves the Yankees? No, um, there's uh, there's no difference. Having... having Having a, um, a you know a anonymous you know um, sort of persona on the on the internet on Facebook or Twitter et cetera does not um, enable you to do anything you wouldn't be able to do otherwise as a government employee. And again, if if you know if the listener wants to do something, feels like they absolutely you know, have to speak out in some way, the first first piece of advice is has already been put out there is not on a piece of government equipment, not on government time. Um, right. So. You know, not why you're at the office in any way whatsoever. The one exception to this, interestingly, is, um, and this is true now. This could change. So I wouldn't encourage anyone to do this. But, um, but as of right now, teleworking is considered a kind of a weird space in between where you are permitted to engage in some political activities, and not others. But the the more general question as to social media, again, this is an evolving area of law, um, and there are a lot of a lot of specific parts to it. Like for instance, on Facebook, you have a cover photo and a profile photo. If you are a government employee, your cover photo, which is the thing that people only see if they go into your profile, um, that picture can contain political speech. It can, it can contain, you know, an endorsement of, of right. things. Um, but your profile picture, which appears every time you engage in any activity on Facebook, 
cannot contain um, political speech uh, or an encouragement to vote for or raise money for a candidate or a, or a cause. Um, there are rules about um, having subordinates um, as friends on Facebook. Um, there are rules about um, liking you know, or, or commenting on um, other people's posts on Facebook, which could be seen as um, raising funds for a political candidate. The rules are, again, so all over the place, but I, but I would say that the OSC has a great website where they have kind of a frequently asked questions area and all of their advisory opinions are there. And you can usually find the answers you're looking for um, within those materials. Um, and if you, know, if you can't find your answer there, then the ethics officer in your own agency is a great place to go. And um, if you can't find the answer there, my advice would always be to kind of finish where we started, you know, when in doubt, don't do it. Fair enough. And I know uh, Kelsey's going to list for, for all of our listeners uh, on the Foreign Policy Project's website, a listing of all of the terms, a, uh, a glossary, if you will. Uh, and we'll also include some additional resources. I think we can put the OSC website on there. Are there other resources specific to Hatch Act um, for folks to take a look at online? Are there particular resources that you would recommend? I think, I think that's the best one. I mean, when you, when you run searches about the Hatch Act on Google, you will be diverted into the, the pages of about you know, 8,000 different law firms that are looking to you know, give you a small piece of information and then you know, possibly a retainer after that. So I steer away from most of the things you find online. Um, but, but again, I, I think the OSC page is, is the place I would go. And again, the ethics officer in your agency is, is also the, the second best source of information. Okay, so we've got a couple of resources to keep in mind there. All right, I wanna go back to something you talked about earlier, which were these three major categories uh, to whom somebody should disclose, the supervisor, the inspector general, and the office of special counsel. What happens if you're the supervisor to whom somebody is disclosing? What is your responsibility then? Well, that's, you know, that's a very, uh, that's a very fa fact-specific question. Um, I think that, and it also depends on the job, but I think generally, um, a supervisor um, has an obligation to, you know, to raise the matter to keep it going up the, uh, the bureaucratic chain of command um, until it reaches a, an appropriate authority, which could be the inspector general, it could be the um, the director, it could be the general counsel. Um, it really, would really depend on the agency and the subject matter. Fair enough. And so I know we talked a lot about some of the categories here um, that it has to be a violation of of law, rule or regulation, gross mismanagement, waste of funds and abuse of authority. And then Mandy touched upon the, the nuances of whether something is a, a substantial and specific danger to public health or safety. What I'm not seeing on here is policy. What if you don't agree with the policy? Uh, tough <laughs> is what I would say. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because this is an area where um, we see a lot of people, you know, mistake their own disagreement with an agency or governmental policy with waste, fraud, abuse, or any of these other categories. Um, and so, yeah, we'd advise people to be very careful to make sure that 
again, what they're reporting is it falls under one of these categories um, and is not simply a disagreement with um, with the with the agency where they work. But that's where I would argue. Uh... While the laws don't protect you as a whistleblower, there are ways that we would want to help you uh, make that disclosure if you still think this is something that's terribly important. Uh, there are many things that people see. I think of government employees as the eyes and ears for the public on what's going on. And there may very well be things that don't fall in those categories of protected disclosures, but are still very important for the public to be aware of. And and that's the kind of navigating sort of best practices that we would want to help them work through so that they don't um, uh, get sideways with their agency because, as Ari's pointing out, the laws aren't going to be able to protect them. Yeah, and I, and I, I think this discussion perfectly illustrates you know, the difference between a, a lawyer like me and, a, um, and an organization like POGO. POGO is where you go if you want to get the information out to make a difference in some way, and then you want to go back to your desk and continue along, which is what I would advise most people to do. Pogo's mission is you never have to talk to me. Um, lawyers who do uh, whistleblower work, like we're there when things go wrong, essentially. Um, but you know, most people I would advise, go to Danielle, go to Mandy. They're the people that can keep you out of trouble. Right. And so... I know, let's go back to the, the press here. Uh, Mandy, I know there was something you wanted to add on this. Oh, I think we largely addressed it, but specifically when we think that there's an imminent threat to public safety or national security, that is where it can be a protected disclosure. And then similarly with the policy uh, disagreements, I would just urge you that if you are going to the press with that or to another outside source to be very clear about what the impact is of that policy change, because a lot of, you know, federal employees are amazing experts in their field and frequently to outsiders, it's not always clear what the significance is. And so help us understand, because, for example, um, gross waste of funds, if you are a contracting officer in the acquisition arm of an agency uh, and there is a, uh, a particular policy which which you then believe is leading to a gross waste of funds, what are those lines look like and how can folks ensure they're on the right side of being included in protections? I think from my perspective, you know what you know what 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 is waste and what is gross waste um, you know, depends on a few things, one of which is how much is being, how much is being wasted in terms of dollar amounts and, uh, and, what, and what is the nature of the waste? Is it overspending on something or is it diverting government resources from where it's supposed to go to an entirely different place? In the case of overspending, um, POGO has a lot more experience with, um, with that kind of um, disclosure than I do. But with respect to the diversion of funds from where they're supposed to go to a different place, um, there's a very there's usually pretty strong protections um, for that kind of disclosure. Um, it, it can't be a de minimis amount, but anytime taxpayer dollars are supposed to go to point A, but they go to point B instead, that's that's going to be a protected disclosure. And in theory, um, the person could very possibly be able to file a case under the False Claims Act, right, Ari? Yeah, um, which is essentially you you become the government's prosecutor um, under those claims. I mean, you have to first give the Department of Justice the opportunity to 
prosecute whoever is diverting the funds to the wrong source. Um, but if the and if the DOJ does prosecute, you're entitled to some of the proceeds if, if they win. If the, yeah. DOJ, the DOJ declines to prosecute, you can then proceed on your own as essentially the you know the, the sheriff or the prosecutor for the government, um, and then you're entitled to recover whatever the government lost. It's quite a remarkable law. Its origins were back in the Civil War during the um, uh, when Abe Lincoln. Uh, was concerned about war profiteers who were delivering boxes of what was supposed to be ammunition but was filled with sawdust and created this bounty law, really, which has been very, very effective. Hmm. Interesting. So I want to bring in another question that we got from a listener related to our conversation on policy or perhaps the the, the, the lack of protection for uh policy disclosures where there's disagreement. Uh, as has been widely reported, uh, there was a dissent channel cable that was drafted with kind of state. Uh, we got a question about whether uh, retribution for participation in that dissent channel cable would be protected. I think it would, it would not be protected under whistleblower laws, but it might be protected um, under discrimination against people for political affiliation. But I don't know that I don't know that that particular case or that fact pattern has made it to the courts yet. On the on the dissent, I think it's very important, and we at Pogo have been very concerned about those. I'm, I understand it may be up to a thousand State Department employees who had signed this uh, dissent channel um, communication. My understanding is the agency has rules that are quite explicit in protecting that speech. I think that's something that needs to be. Um, taken very seriously. If someone has experienced retaliation, I think that's the kind of thing we want to hear from because it's very important to to make sure that that is um, is preserved. The legitimacy that that is a, a channel that has been operating since I believe the 70s, and so we can't allow it to be degraded in the quality of protections for that speech. And so let's talk a little bit about different forms of discrimination. Many of our listeners today are women. Um, there is a gender component to this as well, is there not? Uh, that's That's been my experience, and not just a gender component, but a minority component um, in the same ways that women, you know, again, my case load combines, you know, whistleblower cases with civil rights cases, and the same sorts of dynamics and stereotypes that we see that uh, that cause women to have a more difficult time in several workplaces, cause them to be viewed differently when they're engaging in protected activities. So whereas a, uh, a male employee might disclose some information to improve something, he might be viewed as someone who's like a go-getter, making sure that everything is is, is straight and narrow and all that. And a female employee might disclose the same information and be regarded as a hysteric will be regarded as a complainer. And so we certainly have seen cases where the same stereotypes that are held about women, about racial minorities, about the disabled, even, um, they, all, they all play themselves out in this area as well. When we talk about the risks of disclosing um, and, and why it is sometimes often much better to be an anonymous whistleblower than to be out in the open, is for people who have security clearances and who need to have security clearances as part of their job, um, the the Supreme Court has been very clear on this for a couple decades now um, that the loss of a security clearance is not 
an adverse employment action. It is not something that you can sue to regain, nor can you sue anybody for making the decision to take away your security clearance, even if, if it can be shown to be discriminatory or retaliatory. Um, so special warning for people with security clearances. Mm-hmm. Important to keep in mind, though, as I understand, there there might be um, internal processes if if uh, if you do receive a judgment on that that there might be ways internal to an agency to to have that conversation although well maybe what you're saying here is there are no guarantees and if it doesn't work in your favor you're out of luck uh pretty much yeah yeah so you can appeal but if you if you lose the appeal you're pretty much done on that front right have you seen uh in cases where folks do uh go down the path of disclosure lose the clearance, but then ultimately are found to have been uh, right in doing so, and, and a court recognizes that action, that a clearance uh, is then reinstated? The, the issue, and in, in, I'm venturing well outside my area of expertise here, but, um, but, I, but I do know that the, the issue of whether a clearance um, is reinstated is, is strictly um, an issue for the, the agency in charge of that clearance, um, and it is always considered completely separately from how the security clearance was lost to begin with. They're, they're segregated and are never considered at the same time. Actually, Ari, Presidential Policy Directive 19 was recently implemented, and it provides protections for individuals who hold security clearances by prohibiting retaliatory acts intended to affect their ability to hold a clearance. That was put in place in the wake of the Edward Snowden and other disclosures when it became clear that there actually weren't protected channels for whistleblowers to go through. Um, And in this case, what someone can do is they can actually go to their agency inspector general and have them investigate that form of retaliation. To add to the complexities of that, uh, there's an entire universe of the federal workforce, which has now also been uh, identified as national security sensitive. Is that actually, Mandy, is that the right term? Uh, positions that are national security sensitive, yes. And, and they, uh, that whole universe is potentially even um, undermined the ability to, to apply the whistleblower protections that already exist. It's a, a, um, it's a debate that's taken place with OPM. It, it was litigated and we're trying to correct that, but that is you know, yet another element of on top of all the others that we've talked about um, that may apply to your listeners. And have you seen instances in which those designations have been made retroactively, which is to say somebody had, uh, upon disclosure, not been in a national security protected position, uh, but then later post-disclosure is designated in that way? I have not seen that. I have not, but the concern okay. is that, you know, positions like janitors and that kind of thing, that if you're operating near classified information, that you could see an overly broad reading of national security sensitive positions. Yeah, the case law on that was based on uh, someone who was stalking a commissary, I think, in the in the Pentagon, and they were arguably... Uh, the government was arguing that, that was a national security sensitive position. We've talked, we've covered a lot of ground here. We've talk, talked about uh, disclosures potentially to uh, appropriate members of Congress, which is something that POGO can help facilitate. 
disclosures to the press and instances where that material is very obviously not classified. Um, and then the, the bodies and, and persons to whom uh, you would be required to disclose should you decide to become a whistleblower. So, so let's assume that you've gone through all of these other paths uh, and it's just not working and you feel like there's just, you're not getting traction and there is this uh, substantial waste, fraud and abuse and you feel as though you are very clear within your rights under WPA um, to move forward. What does that look like? There are a few, there are a couple, maybe three different groups, depending on what kind of employee you are and what agency you work for. Um, and so I'm going to talk generally, but, you know, as always caution that, you know, this, this could be different depending on where, where you sit. Um, if the, if the adverse action that you experience is a termination or a suspension of more than 14 days, um, then you can go immediately to the Merit System Protection Board um, and raise a claim under the Whistleblower Protection Act um, to either get your job back or to recover damages for whatever you lost as a result of that, of that action. Um, there's an indirect way to get to the MSPB and that's through the OSC. And I should say MSPB is for the Merit System Protection Board. Um, if you, if the adverse action is not one of those two things, let's say it's a demotion, let's say it's a detail to some place you don't want to be, um, or let's say it's a bad performance review or really any of the things that are, that are considered adverse enough, um, you can make your complaint to the office of special counsel. Um, and they, you know, and after a certain amount of time, um, they must release your claim so you can take it to. Um, the Merit System Protection Board. Um, so they're kind of the indirect way to get there, but that's the way most of our people find their way to the Merit System Protection Board. And the final way is if you are covered by a collective bargaining agreement, you can file a union grievance. Um, and, you know, again, with the uncertainty about how the OSC is going to be looking, um, you know, my, my practice is to go to the Merit System Protection Board if, it ever, if at all possible. Um, but the uh, union grievance uh, process is one that is a good one, depending on how strong your union is. Um, and I think that's this is a decision you want to speak through with an attorney. Hopefully, because your listeners are, are starting to think about this now in advance of something happening, they will be able to avoid the missteps of, of people in the past. Okay, uh, Mandy, so I want to turn it over to you to explore what are some of the tools that folks might want to consider to encrypt their communications? So generally we would encourage people, if you have the opportunity to communicate your concerns in a low tech way, that's probably still going to be the safest way to do it. If you can meet in person, if you can talk on the phone briefly to arrange how to meet with someone, uh, if you can slip an envelope under the door, and then make a follow-up call, those tend to be the safest ways. But if you want to look at how to use encryption, I think the easiest form for most people is to use Signal, which is an app that you can download on your phone. They now have video capabilities in addition to texting. With all of these different mechanisms, you want to make sure that you're leaving as little electronic trail as possible. So again, using this generally to arrange meeting up 
the other tools we have secure drop, which is one of the ways that you can send documents to Pogo. Um, and we check that every week. Uh, you can also use encrypted email and set up any more cumbersome to set those up, but Freedom of the Press has really great resources on how you can use all of those tools as well. So as our hour here comes to a close, we want to remind our listeners that nothing you've heard here today should be considered legal advice of any kind, and also that the facts of the particular circumstances uh, are important and really will determine uh, what particular outcomes might exist, depending on where you sit, the kind of badge you hold, the color of uniform that you may or may not wear, all of this will factor into your experience. We're gonna share some great resources for you on the Foreign Policy Projects website. We encourage you to take a look at those as a starting point for continuing our conversation. We'll have some terms up there for you. And we invite you to continue the conversation online as well. You can join the Women's Foreign Policy Network at facebook.com slash women's FP network. Thanks so much to our panelists for all of your time today and for this really useful and important and very timely information. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. That's all for us here at the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm Jenna Ben-Yehuda. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is Misty Moses by the musicians Rodrigo y Gabriela. A very special thanks to RubyWorks Records in Dublin for allowing use of this song for educational purposes. For more information, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org. And thanks for listening.